0: the stars are out. Everyone turn up your volume and turn down your lights. The twilight beacon begins transmitting now. Jedediah D. Blackwell here, coming to you from the Twilight Beacon here in the American Southwest. Tonight, I've opened up my vault of recordings from the golden age of radio, and selected two of my favorite episodes from the classic series, Quiet Please. Quiet Please was created by Willis Cooper, who wrote every original episode. This radio program delivered weekly tales of paranormal encounters, tense mystery, and murderous villains. Quiet Please had a signature style of first-person narration, usually by a character in a dire situation. This made the stories feel a bit more intimate and the characters instantly sympathetic. Ernest Chappell, who stars in both of tonight's episodes, was the voice of Quiet Please for many years, and while he had a long career in radio, this was the program he was most recognized for. Chappell started his career as a concert singer and musical theater actor before finding a home in radio in the 1920s. Our first episode of Quiet, Please is Take Me Out to the Graveyard, a simple tale of a cab driver's experiences with a series of strange passengers, and as unusual as these travelers are, it's their destination that is even more worrying. And now we present Take Me Out to the Graveyard, as heard on Quiet, Please in November of 1947. Quiet, please.
1: Quiet, please. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please written and directed by Willis Cooper and features Ernest Chappell. Quiet Please, for tonight, is called Take Me Out to the Graveyard. Which one, I said? Which Graveyard? We got a lot of them. The new one, the old one, the Catholic one, the Potter's Field. Oh, any one will do, driver. I'm not particular. You kidding, mister? No. Just take me out to the graveyard, that's all. Well, you drive a cab 12, 15 years like i done you, get some funny ones. Drums that want to take you home with them. Guys that tell you to take them to the who's at hotel when you're parked practically in front of it. Dames that want you... Yeah, you get some funny ones, but this is the first time I run into this kind of character. Well, so I'm driving a cab to make a buck not to argue with people about where they want to go. So I think. Lakeside Cemetery. That's the farthest. I can rack up a couple of bucks and maybe there'll be somebody out there that wants to take a ride back to town. Get in, mister. Nice day, I think. Yeah, beautiful. I always say this time of the year is the prettiest. Yeah, so do I. Good time of the year to die. Huh? I said this is a good time of the year to die. Yeah, for so my dog, no time of the year is a good time to die. You gotta die, though. Yeah, but it ain't good. I don't know. I don't either. I ain't died yet, but I can't get very enthusiastic about it. That's why I wanted to go to the graveyard... Why? Did I? You ain't nuts, are you, Mister? No. Nope. <laughs> What's your name, driver? George Peterson. My name's Booth. Pleased to meet you. B O O T H. Yeah? So you can tell people when they ask you. Tell what people? Well, you know, policemen, foreigners, whoever asks. I already asked you if you're nuts, didn't I? <laughs> Well, I'm not. Well, then you better take down your sign. No, I'm perfectly okay, Julius. Well, something's wrong with you if you talk that way. No. Do you hurt? uh, Like in your noggin' or something? (laughs) I never felt better in my life. You want to look out? You might really die. I know it. How do you know? Well, that I couldn't tell you, Julius. I just know it, that's all. And I'm not particularly upset about it. Why gracious I am. Think nothing of it, Julius. you stop talking crazy then? I'm not going to argue with you, Julius. And don't die. Julius, you stick to your driving and let me worry about the dying, will you? You ain't worrying. You're all the time grinning. I can see you in the rearview mirror. Uh, watch the road. <laughs> you ain't afraid of getting killed, are you? No, I'm not. I... I didn't like the way you said that there. I'm sorry. How are you going to do this, Mr. Booth? Dying? Yeah. I don't know. Yes. Well, what if you don't? I will. Hey, listen. Mom. What about me? Oh, you'll be all right, Julius. You sure? Positive. Well, that's something. You know, it is a beautiful day. You changing your mind? I catch him if my mind. Hey, do you work on the radio or something? Why? Oh, I just thought maybe he was one of them fellas that think up these mystery kind of stories. You know, at night and he was practicing on me. Sorry to disappoint you, Julius. I don't get it. You will. You live here in town? No. Stranger, huh? That's right. A stranger on his last taxi cab ride... I'm beginning to get an idea about you, stranger. You are? I sure am. What kind of idea are you getting, Julius? Listen, mister. No suicides in my camp. I'm not going to commit suicide, Julius. You better not. But I am going to die. Listen. What are you stopping for? This isn't the cemetery. I know it ain't, but this is as far as you're going. What do you mean? I hired you to... Get out. Now, look, here, I... Thanks, Nick. get out, Mr. Booth. I ain't riding any loose nuts in any cemetery with suicide on her mind. I told you, I am not going to commit suicide. Jesus. I'll say you ain't. Not in my cab, at least. Outside, mister. Well, you say so. But it certainly... And the clock says 40 cents. Okay. Keep the rest of it. You know, you're not going to make it come out any different this way, Jesus. I really wasn't going to die in your cab, you know. Yeah. Yeah, he was right. He's one of us, the sort of Gasoline truck that hit him. How do you figure that? He called it, didn't he? Then he was going to die. Why was he right? Well, like I said, pretty nearly anything can happen to a cab driver. It's only it hardly ever happens twice. So it's a couple of months later, and I'm bucking a line at the corner of Adams and Fulton, and this girl comes out of a store and walks towards me. She's wearing black stockings. Don't seem like cows wearing black stockings these days. She steps towards the cab, so I reach out the window and unbutton the door, and I say, Where to, lady? Take
2: me out to the graveyard.
1: What'd you say, lady?
2: I said the graveyard,
1: the cemetery. Lady, are you kidding me? Why should
2: I kid you, driver?
1: What cemetery do you want to go to, lady? Oh, is there more
2: than one? Yes, ma'am. Oh, well, if you pick
1: one now. I... I turn around in the seat and I look at her. She's a such an ordinary girl, 26, 27. She had on these black stockings. I look at her a minute. I said, Lady, listen.
2: Yes.
1: Are you sure you want to go to the graveyard?
2: I certainly am. Why?
1: Ah. I don't like to go to the graveyard, lady. You don't? No, lady.
2: Well, that's all very interesting. But I wanted to go to the graveyard. So will you please pull down your flag and stop? Now, please, please.
1: It never occurred to me for the longest time I called me Julius. How does she know my name? Hey, how do you figure this one out? But I don't like any part of this. One trip to the graveyard I started just like this and look what happened. Well, I figure I'll run out of gas with this thing. That's been done before when a hacky don't want to take me where you want to go. I just open my mouth to say it to her and she says...
2: And um, don't
1: tell me you're out of gas, Julius, because I know better. I can see your gaze. maybe I was just going to tell you that... The graveyard. G. What are you going to do with a thing like this here? I don't like any little bitsy part of it. I, I tried to jump a red light with a cop standing right there looking at me, and it, it turns green. And so, Yeah, with the black stockings, just giggles and laughs. She was the cheerfulest woman I ever seen. She leans over and talks in my ear.
2: I'm worried, Jillian.
1: I wanted to say, why, lady? But you know what? I was scared of how she'd answer me. Up... Adams to Maine, out Maine to Knoxville, out Knoxville on a way to Big Green. After a while, she said up. I was thinking. I said, What'd you say, lady? I said,
2: Can't you drive faster?
1: I thought I was saying, lady, they got speed laws in this here town, but that wasn't the way it come out. The way it came out was different. Well, I know it came out different because of the way she answered me.
2: Because I have to get there quickly. Because I've
1: got to die. How scared can you get? the street car by about six inches. I swallowed my heart back down and drove about half a block before I spoke to her again. I said it very careful. I didn't understand you, lady. What? I didn't get you. uh, What you said.
2: Oh, I said I have got to die. I thought
1: that's what you said.
2: You see, that's we have to hurry. You don't want to go to a... Hospital?
1: See, I'm trying to make myself... What is it? To ra- rationalize this thing. I said, you don't want to go to a hospital, huh? I'm
2: not sick. Well, what's all this about
1: one to die, then? I didn't say I want to die. I said I have to
2: die.
1: This wouldn't be a gag, would it? No, it, it wouldn't be a yeah. gag. Certainly
2: would not.
1: No, you wouldn't know about this guy. What are you talking about? There was a guy a couple of months ago. His name was Mr. Booth. Well? He got in my cab and he wanted to go to the graveyard. Oh? And he said he was going to die. Did he? You mean did he say so or did he die?
2: Yes.
1: He done both, lady. Well, you see. Mm. Lady, get out of my cab. I
2: won't You're
1: not going to die in my cab now.
2: Well, I will if you don't get to the graveyard pretty quick.
1: You get out. I won't do it. I
2: hired you to take me to the
1: graveyard. You talk just like that Mr. Booth did. Did you make him get out of your cab? You're yeah, darn right I did. What would you
2: have done if he hadn't got out? I just throwed him out. Well, you can't throw a woman out.
1: No. But I can just park here till you get out. But I won't get out.
2: Yeah,
1: you will, too. No,
2: I won't. I'll die right here in your cab. Lady, please don't do
1: that. Well, then you get along to the
2: graveyard. You better hurry, too. Please. There isn't much time
1: Lady. you better keep my name. Why? You know why. So as I can tell the cops who you are. Who I was. Okay, lady, but I wish you wouldn't. It's
2: Henrietta
1: Gilbert. Miss Gilbert, would you please?
2: Drive on. I'll
1: get in the jam, Miss Gilbert. Drive on. Oh, got it. Hurry. Why couldn't you take another cab?
2: Because this is the right one. What do you mean? Well, I knew it as soon as I saw it.
1: This thing looks like a hearse or something? It's
2: to me, it's tight. Well, it ain't. <laughs> That's what you think.
1: <laughs> I don't see what you're so cheerful about.
2: Why shouldn't I be?
1: Well, if, if you're going to die. Oh, well,
2: goodness, I can't help it, so why cry about
1: it? Well, sir, I turned around and I looked at it. That was where I made my mistake. I turned right around again, and where that speak car come from, I'll never know. Oh, oh, I didn't miss that one. He was kidding. No, I wasn't hurt at all. It took a cut on my part You can hardly see it. It cost me $26 to get my front axle straight and the grill worked well. Damn, Julius! I haven't done nothing, Inspector. Nothing anybody could hang on you so far. I didn't do a thing. Four people have died in your cab. Is that nothing? One of them didn't. Huh? He was outside the cab. Now look, let's not get into any technicalities, Julius. All right. Okay. Let's hear your story. I already told it, do you, Inspector? Well, you don't expect me to believe that Uh, uh, malarkey, do you? I believe it. You do, huh? Well, I was there when they all happened. And they all wanted to go to the graveyard. I told you that. Yeah, I know you did. And they all told you they was going to die. I told you that, too. All right, all right. Now, I want you to tell me one more thing, Julius. How did they know they was going to die? Hmm? I don't know. Huh? I don't know. Didn't you ask them? I never thought about it. Why didn't you? Oh, my gosh, Inspector, would you think of that when somebody tells you something like that? I don't know. Never happened. It sure happened to me. What? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, That's what you say, anyway. It's true, Inspector, just as true as I'm standing. Sitting here. Julius. Sir? you... You didn't kill them people, did you? No, I didn't. Hmm. Sir? I just said hmm. Oh. No, I ought to suspend your license. No, don't. Uh, please don't, I mean, Inspector. I ought to. i got to make a living. You don't have to kill people. I don't. Well, they die. Everybody dies. Yeah, but not in your cab. What? I mean, they oughtn't to die in your cab. Well, that'll be all right with me, Inspector. You, uh, you can't figure out any reason, huh? Well, if I could, would I be taking people to the graveyard? Hey, you've got something there, Julius. I know it. But, of course, if people tell you to take them somewhere, you have to take them. City ordinance 809B, 19... I know it, I know it. Uh, I can't figure it out. Me neither. Must be something in your cab. What? Maybe your cab's haunted. Don't be. I mean... I don't think so. Sure, you don't say anything to him? Well, I beef about taking him to the graveyard. I mean, besides that? No. You you don't put no hex on him or anything? I wouldn't know how. Hmm. What am I going to do, Inspector? About what? Oh, uh, well, uh, you, you can't do anything about these people. They're, they're all dead, ain't they? Yeah, they sure are. Yeah, but don't do it anymore. Don't do what? Or I'll suspend your license. But, Inspector... Don't give me an argument now, Julius. I ain't, Inspector. Listen, I... One more and I snatch your license. But I tell you that I... Listen, Julius. What? There must be a reason for it. But what, Inspector? Where's your cab? Outside. Why? I got an idea. Now, listen, Inspector. What? I thought you was... Was what? I guess you ain't, though. Yes, I am. Now, Inspector... Driver! Sir? Take me out to the graveyard! (laughs) So what can I do? Well, he's a license inspector, ain't he? Okay. How, how do you feel, Inspector? I feel okay. Goodie. Hey, uh, you can drive fast if you want to. I'll square a pinch. No, Inspector. Go ahead. I go fast, I bump into something, you get your skull busted. That's all, brother. You won't bump into anything. Yeah, you ain't kidding. You heading for the cemetery? You call the cab, Inspector. I don't feel anything. Stay that way, will you? When did these people tell you they was going to die? Different times. I'll tell you if I feel like it. Yeah, you do that, and I'll stop. Yeah, I'll be on. And then I'll run. Well, I feel okay. Just keep that way, Inspector. It's all I ask. Yeah, it used to be. Hey, Julius. What? This here cab smells funny. I don't smell nothing. Well, I do. Now, listen, Inspector, I... No, no, no. It's nice. Oh. Flowers. Huh? Carnations. You feel okay, Inspector? Sure. And roses. Listen now, sir, I... And, and something else. What? Lilies. Oh. By golly, that's right. Oh. Lilies! Oh, boy. Say, Julius, how far are we from the graveyard? Oh, we're getting closer. You still feel okay? Oh, I feel wonderful. Just smell them lilies and things. Yeah, I'm glad I can't smell them. Just like a greenhouse. Oh, he's not. Or like a funeral. Say. Say? Hey? Did. Did you say. Lily's, Inspector? Yeah. Why? I. I can smell them, too. How much further, Julius? We're, we're pretty near there, Inspector. How do you feel? Elegant. How do you feel? Awful. Awesome. I ain't dead yet Don't say that for God's sake (laughs) What's the matter, Julius? You sure you feel all right? Oh, I feel swell Only them lilies smell awful loud There ain't no lilies You smell them, don't you? I sure wish I didn't Look, Julius What? There's the cemetery Oh, Oh. Oh, boy, we made it Well, don't stop Why not? Go on in No, sir. Now, listen, Julius. I don't want to go in. I hired you to take me to the cemetery. On the cuff. Go on in. Look. Look, I don't like graveyards, Inspector. Go on in. I don't want to. Now we're here. Yeah, we sure are. We're here, so... So, let's go back. Yeah, wait a minute. Where are you going? Hey! This is a pretty cemetery, Julius. Well, come on. Come on, and let's go back. Yeah, it sure is pretty. I'm glad we came. Inspector. No. Well, why not? Don't be such a sack, Julius. I'm going to stay here. What? I'm going over here and go to sleep. Out there, I'll probably be picking you up one of these days. Yeah, you feel all right? The cab's waiting right outside. What you got to do is say, "Take me out to the graveyard." Uh, see you later. Directed by Willis Cooper. The man who spoke to you was Ernest Chapel. And Mr. Booth was played by Don Briggs. Miss Gilbert was Evelyn Juster. The inspector was Ed Latimer. Music for Quiet Please, as usual, is composed and played by Gene Perrazzo. And so, until next week at this same time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chapel. Quiet Please comes to you from New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.
0: just listened to Take Me Out to the Graveyard from Quiet Please as originally aired on November 8th, 1947. Our next episode of the classic radio program Quiet Please is How Beautiful Upon the Mountain. The subject of this episode was unusual for Quiet Please since there were no ghosts or beasts or homicidal maniacs involved. The deadly menace in this story is 29,000 feet of solid rock, the mountain known as Everest. When this program aired in 1948, attempting to reach the summit of Mount Everest was seen as a suicidal endeavor. Only a few serious attempts had yet been made, none of them successful. The first of these was in 1927, a doomed expedition to reach the top, commenced by George Mallory and Andrew Irvine. While it is not clear if the two adventurers reached the summit of Everest, they did not return. Mallory's body was not recovered from the mountain until 1999 and Irvine's corpse has never been found. A successful expedition to the top of Everest was not accomplished until 26 years later in 1953. Since then, the feat has been repeated many times, but even today, survival is not certain. Modern climbers reaching the summit have to trek past the left behind men who died in the attempt, since many of the bodies are not easily recovered. Since the first fatal expedition in 1927, over 300 people have died on Everest seeking adventure and glory. And now, how beautiful upon the mountain, as heard on Quiet Please in May of 1948. Quiet Please.
3: Quiet Please. please. virtual broadcasting system presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called How Beautiful Upon the Mountain. I don't say that Mount Everest will never be successfully climbed. I don't say that at all. What I do say, however, is that no one will ever successfully climb Everest and come back. Yes, I know they said that about the Matterhorn, and Edward Wimper climbed it. Wimper was the man who first stated what many mountain climbers insist is the creed of their arduous calling. You don't know that? Well, it was many years ago, after he'd made the first successful ascent of the Matterhorn. Someone asked him why he could not see a mountain without wanting to climb it. His reply was simple, and it's become historic. Because it's there, he said and mountain climbers the world over will solemnly assure you that that is their reason, too. I beg to differ. I think there's another reason. A compulsion in the hearts of certain brave men and women that has existed since the beginnings of time. A compulsion that they very probably never realize is there. A compulsion that is revealed only to a rare few of those that lift up their eyes to the hills. I think it is because the mountains have always been the earthly, abiding place of divinity. I think it's because certain mortals are consumed by a subconscious cosmic curiosity to find the abode of the gods, by an urge to seek and an overpowering hope to find naked divinity at last incarnate on the roof of the world. But these divinities do not welcome human intrusion. Men have walked upon the peak of Mount Olympus, where Zeus and Hera, Pallas Athena and Aphrodite dwelt, and have not found them. Quetzalcoatl has departed from the high peak to the Mexican Cordilleras, where men have vainly sought him there. And though the specter of the Bakken sometimes appears today, the traveler knows it to be only the magnified image of himself. But still, the ancient secret compulsion exists. And men climb mountains because of it. In all the recorded history of the world, no known man has ever conquered Everest. The reason? Well, they speak of unclimbable walls of the lethargy that comes from lack of oxygen. They speak of insufferable cold, of howling winds and sudden storms, of impassable crevasses and monstrous avalanches. And these things are true. I've experienced them myself. But there are avalanches and crevasses and winds and snow and cold on other mountains and men have climbed them. Could it be that the gods have tired of retreating and have set a barrier on this, their last refuge, against the men of the plains? No man has ever looked upon the summit of Everest, more than five miles above the level of the distant sea. Many men have flown near Everest, hoping for a glance at the highest spot on Earth, but Everest has evaded them. In a motion picture that the Marcus of Clydesdale made more than 15 years ago, when he became the first man to fly over the mountain, the eternal veil, the plume of Everest, reached out and covered the peak. You haven't heard of that? Well, if you ever have an opportunity to see those pictures, go. Perhaps what you see will help convert you to my way of thinking. Ceaselessly, day in and day out, in sunshine and in storm, a great plume of ice crystals and powder snow streams out from the crest of the mountain. A terrible white banner that can instantly become a great whip to lash down at the mountain's own flanks as if to drive off some intruder toiling up the incredible slopes to the Virgin summit Yes, I have seen that. Others have seen it, too. Irvine and Lee Mallory saw it, the two men who came closest to the top. And the others of their party saw the plume snatch at them as they struggled upward. And when it lifted again, they had disappeared. No man has seen them since. They did find the ice axe Lee Mallory carried. They found it far down the slopes from where the plume snatched the two men away. And it was curiously bent and twisted. The sturdy, high-tension steel. I met John Shantos when I was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. We became great friends through our mutual interest in mountain climbing. I wish you could have seen John Shantos standing before the mantel in my rooms at Oxford on a bleak, rainy day in early autumn. I'm fed to the teeth, Hugh, with this place. Let's chuck it and go somewhere. Climb a mountain nobody else has climbed. What mountain, old boy? Well, Everest by choice. Hmm. You got 50,000 pounds? I could get it. All right, let's go. I mean it. I could get it. Where? Never mind where. Now, look. Would you come? Are you serious? I'm serious. Oh, I wish you were. I tell you, I am. Yeah, of course, you know it'll probably be the end of it. Rather well, I have it that way, than drying up bit by bit in Oxford. Wouldn't you? I would, yes. Well, then. I haven't a cent. <laughs> a shilling, I mean. You won't need it. I've got plenty. Well, why Everest? Look, Brent, old boy. Ever since I was a child, I've had one, only one, ambition. You got a cigarette? Hmm. Oh, tough. To see the top of Everest. And I'm going to. Come along, do. Me. <laughs> now, what are you laughing at? Well, just the casual way you put it. Let's go see the top of Everest, you and I. <laughs> Half the world away, five miles straight up, dozens of men have died and disappeared trying it. Let's go see the top of Everest. <laughs> Someone's going to do it one day, you know. Yes, that's true. Well, shall we be the ones? And on that casual basis, the Shandos-Brandt Mount Everest expedition began. We left Oxford. We left England after purchasing thousands of pounds worth of equipment, tents, windproof clothing, weapons and photographic equipment, dehydrated foods, batons, ice axes, cases of brandy, miscellaneous equipment by the hundredweight. And at last we were in Darjeeling, talking to men who knew the roof of the world, learning the names of obscure villages where we might find guides to lead us to the upper reaches of the Great White Mountain. And a day came when our preparations were completed and a great deal of money spent. And we set out in motor cars to the final takeoff spot where no motor could go and only the feet of men had walked before. The native guides, as hard-bitted a crew as ever I saw, gathered around their tiny fires. We sat before our little tents and smoked and drank hot sweet tea against the morning. <sighs> Glad, eh, Brent? Yes, in a way, not going to be pleasant, though. Oh, it won't be too bad for a while till we get up really high. Oh, no, no, no worse than some places I've been. I wonder what's up there. Can't tell much from the photographs, can we? Just ice and snow and rock. And plenty of it. quite. You know, I was wondering something today. What? I was wondering if any of these native chaps have been up there. On top? Yes. Oh. Be like them, you know, to be laughing at the silly white men. Coming halfway around the world to be the first man on top. While all the time old Bungo and his nephew have been up there a dozen times. Good joke. <laughs> no, I doubt it, Chandler. Oh, so do I, really. But you know these chaps? None of them seem any too enthusiastic about going up. Not if you go by the pay they'd insisted on. Well, you know, Everest is uh, some kind of a god or something to them. Hmm. Is to me, too. What? Oh, I I know it sounds silly, but... Maybe we're being sacrilegious or something. Maybe nobody's supposed to climb up there. Not getting uh, cold feet, are you? Oh, no, not at all. They're quite warm, thank you. Oh... (laughs) more um, of your American slang. <laughs> no, I've not got the wind up, if that's what you mean. But... Uh, Superstition. I... I was thinking. I mean, I wonder what is waiting for, uh, for us up there. Cold and snow and ice and thin air. Besides that, what do you mean? I'm remembering what that chap wrote about vine and Lee Mallory and the plume up there. Down it came, he said, like a sentient thing, like the hand of a god, and swept them away before my very eyes. Now, look, you begin to worry about giants and things up there. You'd better stay here. Oh, I'm not worried, Brandt. I'm just curious. Somehow, I'm excited. Like a chap who's waiting to meet his bride at the church on his wedding day. (laughs) I say, that's being a bit idiotic, isn't it? (laughs) Look at her up there. Cold and white and beautiful, not caring about us at all. We are coming up after you, old girl, if we die in the attempt. And as I lay there in the firelight, listening to the quiet music that came from the shadowy groups of guides and bearers, a strange thought formed in my mind. Shouldn't John Chandos have said, and? And die in the attempt? And the sound of the little flute went on in the cold twilight and presently we went to our tents and slept. And I dreamed of a woman's face. A bride's face on a high mountain. And somehow the face was the mountain itself and the mountain was a face. And it was cold, icy cold. And a voice said in my ear something that I dimly remembered from the Bible, from Isaiah. How beautiful upon the mountain." And the music of the flute dissolved into a great crashing chord. And I awoke trembling in the blackness of a frigid morning. I need not tell you of the next few weeks of the ascent to the camp at 23,000 feet hardly a mile below the summit. If you have climbed mountains, you will know it to be an endless nightmare of traversing great rocky slopes, of scaling precipitous walls, of making our way cautiously across the ice bridges that span crevasses as deep as infinity. Days of twiling upward rope together sometimes, only to find a way blocked by a new fall of rock or a snowslide our guides had forgotten. Inching our way up rock chimneys. Hammering our pitons laboriously into the face of the living rock and climbing a foot at a time up walls where one misstep, one missed grip would have sent both our bodies tumbling to a horrid death a thousand feet below. Days of clawing our way through sudden snowstorms with a biting flake so thick that we'd lose each other at ten feet distance. In the midday halt, the gulp scalding tea, rope down a bar of chocolate, and then rise and go on again. And behind us, the diminishing string of porters carrying our supplies, dropping off at regular intervals to set up camp against our return. If we should return. And then the agony of the last few thousand feet. At those heights, of course, exhaustion was our greatest enemy. The oxygen at 20,000 feet is pitifully thin. Each upward step is a lifetime. And the brain real but there in the rarefied atmosphere that man is not meant to breathe. We made the 26,000-foot camp, and we climbed another 1,000 feet. I'm not sure whether the way grows more difficult as one goes higher. Perhaps the rock formations are no more forbidding at that elevation than they are at the lower levels. But here the strain on mind and muscle and heart is so magnified that the the slightest setback is enough to cause a, a strong man to fall down and... Weep loud, freezing tears of frustration. I remember that our guides would go no farther than we struggled up with alone that one morning. And at the end of the day, we were a bear 200 feet above them. It seemed to take half the night to get our tent pitched, And I have little doubt it actually did. And I sank into delicious sleep. And again I dreamed. I dreamed of the womb again. A surpassingly beautiful woman. With eyes like the crystals of ice that made up our world. And about her hair she wore a great white scarf. A kind of plume that moved as if it were a living thing. Billowing out over her shoulders. Never still. Seeming not to be blown by the wind. But to control the wind itself. And I, I used to Mine could not remember what it was I knew. And I tried to look into her eyes but she was looking beyond me. And in my dreams I turned and I knew she was looking at John Chandler and on his face was a look of ineffable adoration. And when I turned to gaze at her again the same look of love was in her eyes and the veil and the plume whipped around and I thought it brush my face like an icy light. And it reached out and encircled John shanderson And I awoke. And when John shanderson awoke, he spoke of a dream he had had. The most amazing dream, old boy. Dreamed of the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. cold oh, like a bride... And a great white veil, blowing in the wind, smiled at me. Most real dream I ever had. She was barefooted in all this cold, and the veil that wrapped it around me. Must be going, mustn't we? And he crawled out of the tent into the clear, cold dawn of the high altitude. And in a moment I heard him calling, "Brant, Brant, old boy, Brant!" I say, "Come out." Uh, What's up? Come out. I found something. I crawled out with great effort. To find him on his knees at the side of the tent, staring at something in the hard-packed snow. What is it? I asked. He pointed. Look there. And I looked. There in the snow were a woman's footprints. A woman bare footprints in the age-old snow where no human being had ever been before. On my knees, I examined them carefully. A woman had stood there for a long time and then turned away. And the footprints in the snow led upward. I lifted my head and looked up at the top of the mountain, still far above us in the rays of the first sun. And the veil, the plume of Everest, coldly against the dark blue of the sky. You said superstition when I talked about what was up here, Grant. You know it wasn't superstition. You saw the footprint. You saw how easy it was to follow them this morning... You know we've climbed three times as far today as we ever climbed before. She's leading us. She wants us to come on up to her. Do you remember the night we started? When I spoke about going to meet my bride? Do you remember, Brent? Yes. I remember. I've not taken leave of my senses, have I, Brent? Not unless I have, to. My name is John Sandler. My family's coat of arms is urgent, a Pile Guild. The days of the week are Monday, Tuesday, <coughs> Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's right. That's right. And we did see the footprints. Yes. We saw them. Are you afraid, Hugh? Afraid? Yes. No. I'm not afraid. Not for me. What then? I had the dream too. Why did you say you're not afraid by yourself? Because in the dream she chose you. Yes, I know that. You're not afraid. Why should I be afraid of my bride? left again, and in the morning we went higher. The way was more difficult for me, but Chandler seemed to find it almost easy. We were on the very ledge from which Lee Mallory and Irvine disappeared in the folds of the plume. I recognized it dimly from the photographs and motion pictures that Captain Noel had made years before, as the two men slowly made their way along the rock wall, not 2,000 feet from the summit. That scene will never leave my mind, and I knew we were almost in the exact spot. Where they had been snatched away. At any second, I thought, the cold caress of the veil, the plume, would fall on us. And then the silences returned. I was seized with a desperate desire to turn back, but Shandos was marching on ahead easily, while I made most heavy going on it. We were roped together, and there was nothing to do but follow. I stumbled. More and more frequently. And at last I could go no farther. I sank down in the snow... close beside the wall with a... a sheer precipice at my elbow. And shadows came back to me... having felt the pull of the rope... at its waist. (coughs) Much further, Hugh. I... I can't make it. Well, higher than any man has... ever been before... I looked up. It was scarcely 500 feet to go. My tired eyes told me. Scarcely 500 feet. I can't. Go on without me. No, I won't. I can't go any farther. Uh, Tomorrow, then? No. Well, what will we do? I'm going back. You can't do that, you. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll go back down with you. But let me go on ahead for just a moment. We're so close now. Let me see if I can go on up to the top by myself. <coughs> and if I can, I will. Then I'll come back and we'll both go back down. Will you let me do that? If if you like. It's easy. You can go on up, too. It's a pity to be this far. Then turn back. Do what you like. You'll stay right here. I'll stay here. Hurry, old boy. Eat a bit of chocolate. (coughs) (coughs) What? Why? You have to go and leave me. I've got to see if somebody's there, old boy. I was already falling into a half stupor as he turned and went up the ledge. And for a little while I slept, I think, alone on a 16-inch ledge five miles above the ground. And I remembered confused dreams of a beautiful bride with a veil of sparkling ice crystals. And there was strange music in my ears. And presently, the sound of John Shandel's voice in disappointment. Come on, old chap. We're going back down. Down? There's no way to the top. What do you mean? There's an absolutely unclimbable wall. Just around the corner. No way? No way, old oh boy. No way at all. The rock face leans outward. I looked at it from every angle. There's just no way. So... Come on. He lifted me to my feet. There was the softest little sound as of something dropping into the snow beside us. I leaned against the wall as Shandos bent and picked it up. He looked at it very curiously for a long moment. And finally I mumbled. What is it? And he stretched out his hand to me. And in it was a full-blown green-stemmed white rose. And when I took it from him, the frozen thing shattered into a million glittering fragments. And I looked at John Chandler's face, and it was transfigured with a joy and a hope, such as I had never seen in any man. My gaze went on beyond him, upward, upward. And against the darkening sky, the great veil that streamed from the mountaintop slowly wheeled around and down toward us. And it seemed not like a whip to us to an icy death, but like the compassionate arms of a beloved woman stretched out to her lover. And then as its coldness enveloped us, I heard the beginning of an avalanche's roar above me and the sound of great bursts of triumphant music. my eyes, and it was morning. I lay on the snow a hundred feet above our last camp, and by turning my head I could see a tiny thread of smoke rising from the tent. And I rose slowly and looked upward. The plume of Everest was still blowing, wide and free from the summit. And with an effort I found my binoculars and focused them on the topmost peak. Snow and ice, and barrenness, snow and ice and barrenness, and a man and a woman, a man in mountain climbers dress. a woman in a bride's flowing white gown and a veil floating from her hair, a veil that dissolved into the great streaming banner of ice crystals flung across the sky above the roof of the world. Quiet, please, for tonight was called How Beautiful Upon the Mountain. It was written and directed by Willis Cooper. Well, the man who spoke to you was Ernest Chappell. And John Chandos was played by Roy Irving, late of the Dublin Gate Theater. Music was played by Albert Berman, as usual, who also composes the special music heard on Quiet, please. And so, until next week at the same time, and there are shadows here. I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell.
0: That will wrap up this episode of the Twilight Beacon. From the radio program Quiet Please, you heard Take Me Out to the Graveyard from November 8th, 1947 and How Beautiful Upon the Mountain from May 3rd, 1948. The Twilight Beacon will return this Thursday, October 6th with another hour of chilling radio thrills. Until then, this is Jedediah D. Blackwell saying good night, everyone, and good luck getting to sleep.
3: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Twilight Beacon podcast. New episodes are released on thetwilightbeacon.com during the month of October and can be found on your favorite podcast apps and streaming services. The Twilight Beacon podcast is produced and edited by Jason and Jacob Burgess. Music by Alexander Nakarada. Special thanks to the Old Time Radio Researchers Group and OTRR.com. Visit thetwilightbeacon.com for archived episodes and the schedule of upcoming shows. You can follow The Twilight Beacon on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the
0: latest program updates.